birds are singing, the sun is out, spring has sprung. Has your wardrobe followed suit? If not, you can get a refresh with Bombas, my favorite brand for socks, tees, and underwear that also has an amazing mission that we support wholeheartedly. Because for every incredible comfy item that I get from Bombas, they match with a donation to someone who is unhoused. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hard things and use code hard things at checkout. If you want to learn something new, would you rather learn it on your own from a random teacher or from folks who are the best of the best in that skill? I think I know which option most of you would choose. That's made possible by Masterclass. In recent months, they've added classes from the likes of Ava DuVernay, who gives us tips on how to reframe our thinking in all walks of life. One of our personal favorites recently was the one-on-one time we got with Amy Poehler in her class on preparing to be unprepared. So good. With Ava DuVernay. With over 180 world-class instructors and a 30-day money-back guarantee for new members, there's no reason not to get started today. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash hard things. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash hard things. Masterclass.com slash hard things. Pod Squad, there's something we need to ask you to do today that would mean so much to us. And that is take 30 seconds to make sure you're following the show. This weird thing happened with the Apple updates and it's kicked a lot of people out of the pause squad. They've been paused. And so we need you to make sure you're not paused. I was. I mean, I was paused out of my own pod squad. I know you were. So to check to see if this happened to you, Apple listeners, listen up. Open your podcast app, search We Can Do Hard Things and select the show page. In the top right corner, you may see a pause symbol. Tap the pause symbol to resume, please. If you see a download symbol, you can go to the settings and automatically download episodes. And if you see a plus symbol, please tap to follow the show. So if you do this, the new episodes just come up in your feed. And this is really helpful to you because you never miss an episode. It's also really helpful to us. It actually matters to us when you listen to the pod. It makes a big difference. So thank you so much. Go to We Can Do Hard Things show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you listen to podcasts and tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click on follow. And you know what? Tell your friends. Maybe send them a link to your favorite episode or to the show. We love you. We appreciate you so much, Pod Squad. really do. Thank you, Pod Squad. Unpause. Unpause us. They stopped asking directions Some places they've never been Welcome to We Can Do Hard Things. Today is an episode that has been a long time coming. And we are doing this episode in response to an email that we received from a pod squatter that I'm going to read right now because I think it's so beautiful. It's a little bit long, but it's important. I believe you. Thank you. Hi, Glenn and Abby and Amanda. 
I've been thinking about writing this message for a while, but listening to your episode with Gabrielle Union served as the great old kick in the butt I needed to speak my own hard and vulnerable truth. I'm always terrified of speaking out in female-centered spaces about how isolating it can feel to be a woman who has chosen not to have children. I'm worried that I'll offend someone or that I'll hurt someone because they may be on their own journey towards parenthood that's filled with devastating obstacles that are really fucking hard. But realizing that I don't want that path has also been really fucking hard. Listening to Gabrielle talk about the shame that came with knowing she wasn't doing this thing that everyone expected her to do. Damn, I felt that. But I felt it in a distinctly different way that ultimately convinced me that speaking this truth has value too. Being child-free by choice has meant that I don't feel shame because my body is broken or failing at this thing it's supposed to do. Instead, I feel shame because I must be broken since I don't even want it in the first place. Society has tangled the ideals of womanhood and motherhood so close together that I can't find professional development spaces that talk about work-life balance when life doesn't include children. I watch TV and movies that show a woman start the story saying she doesn't want children, and then she's changed her mind by the end. Dr. Christina Yang being the one badass exception that I know of. (laughs) Grace Anatomy. God, you love a Grace shout out. Strangers have told me that I'll never know real love. My in-laws think I hate children. And my mother tells me that I shouldn't talk about not wanting children because that might make people who do have children feel bad about their choice. (laughs) When I approached my doctor to tell her I wanted to get my tubes tied, I had to spend over 30 minutes defending this choice before she was willing to do it. And I'm confident that she only relented because I assured her that if I changed my mind, I won't. I would always have adopting anyway. The world doesn't trust that I know my truth about not wanting kids. I guess the main reason I'm writing is on the off chance that there's someone else out there like me who feels like you aren't allowed to speak up about what it means to be a woman who doesn't want children and what it means to connect with your femininity without the part that most everyone else talks about. It wasn't until after getting my tubes tied that I felt like my body fit me, Mm. that I felt Mm. like I could be proud of this body. And it wasn't until after I felt like this female body fit me that I was able to face my binge eating disorder head on. It wasn't until after my surgery that I could begin to take the steps to better manage my depression. This choice isn't right for everyone, but I think sometimes it's nice to hear this choice validated by others. In this week's episode, I noticed that a few times Abby mentioned that some women don't have children by choice. It meant the world to me because it's rare that you hear anyone say that. So thank you for validating my space in this world. And if there's ever the right time or the right topic, it would be lovely to hear from others who have journeyed through life as a woman electing not to have children. With love and apologies for the long message, Liz. This episode is for Liz. Yeah. Today, we have Ruby Warrington. Of course we do. After that email, Ruby Warrington is a British-born author, editor, podcaster, and the founder of Numinous Books. She is the author of Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. 
Ruby has the unique ability to identify issues that are destined to become part of the cultural narrative. That is true. Mm -hmm. Her previous books include Material Girl, Mystical World, Sober Curious. Y'all, Ruby Warrington coined the phrase sober curious. Yes, she did. That's so freaking crazy. Yep. I felt like we were born with that word. We were not. (laughs) And the Sober Curious Reset. And her work has been featured in global outlets, including the New York Times, The Guardian, and Good Morning America. She lives in Miami. Ruby, thank you for waiting through that long introduction. And thank you for all of your work in the world. We're so grateful that you're here. I am so grateful to be here and to have this space to speak on behalf of all of the women out there like Liz. You, I think you read it. The subtitle for my book, Women Without Kids, is The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. Mm. And that feeling, that sensation of there being an unsung sisterhood of women who don't have children, whether it's by choice or by circumstance, was one of the motivating factors behind me wanting to write this book. Mm. As somebody like Liz, who always knew that motherhood was not the path for me, mm. um, I had always felt like I'm the only one. Mm. I am an anomaly. There must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Women are biologically wired to not only procreate, but to desire to procreate. This is what I was raised to believe Mm -hmm. as all girl children are. Mm -hmm. And so it was only really when I I sort of reached my early forties and honestly began looking ahead to menopause and contemplating what the end of my reproductive years might look like for me. And realizing in that moment, I have no regrets. Mm. There is no panic button being pressed in my uterus going, it's now or never, you've got to do this thing. That this peace around, this has always been the right path for me, Mm. descended. And I realized, again, looking around at the other women in my life, wait a minute, I know so many (laughs) women without kids. Where have you been? Mm. Where have the spaces for us to talk about this path be? Where have the spaces for us to valorize each other, Mm. to discuss what it means to live without children, what it might mean for us in our elder years? Where are those spaces? Those spaces do not exist. This episode is decidedly for the Liz's and the Ruby's of the world, for sure. And I also think it would be a mistake to not mention that it feels, you talk about the motherhood spectrum in mm. your book. And I would love to talk about that because it it feels very similar to the gender spectrum or the sexuality spectrum where mm. we understand that not just for the benefit of those that, you know, are far left and far right on that spectrum. Understanding that spectrum liberates every single person on it. I have two biological children and reading your book felt liberating and validating to Mm -hmm. me to find myself on that spectrum also, because it's like, if you don't have biological children, you're on one side of the binary. If you do, you're on the other. And if you do, all of these things are expected of you. And if you are Mm -hmm. not a woman who wants to play with your kid for 1900 hours with Legos on the floor, then you're not a real mother either. Mm. So I Mm. just want to introduce this whole thing as liberating and validating to everyone, wherever Mm -hmm. you are, (laughs) that, that this framework Mm -hmm. is also for you. Yeah. 
talk to us about that, about the difference between what we have now as a mommy binary. Yeah. And you are suggesting that motherhood is more of a spectrum than a binary. Just speak to us in that language because we as queer women feel strongly about that framing. (laughs) Well, it's really interesting. The last episode of the show that I listened to was with Angela Chen, who was speaking about asexuality. And so much of what she was talking about in terms of this spectrum around even something as seemingly kind of niche as asexuality really dovetails with how I talk about the motherhood spectrum. Mm -hmm. And again, Amanda, I'm so happy that you shared that the book resonated with you. I really wanted to include mothers who, and I'm just going to say it, sometimes maybe wish they didn't have kids in this conversation too, because that I think is almost one of the biggest taboos of all. The idea that somebody who is a mother could express on any level. And you know, sometimes this kind of sucks. And sometimes I wonder what my life would have been like if I didn't pursue this. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about verbotum. The book is for anyone who identifies as a woman without kids, including women who are mothers who want to stay connected to the woman that they are without their kids. Yes. (laughs) That's cool. And so the motherhood spectrum actually came out of my work with my last book, Sober Curious, Mm -hmm. which is about presenting a much less black and white approach to problem drinking, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of present in Sober Curious that all drinking can be problem drinking. Drinking comes with some very problematic side effects, regardless of the level at which you're drinking. And it was giving people permission who didn't identify as alcoholics, the permission to question is this really serving me, you know? And so that was where I had done a lot of this work before. And I kind of then started just applying that mindset to this idea of mothering. People of all genders are indoctrinated with the idea that womanhood is synonymous with motherhood. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our biological imperative. Mm -hmm. Whereas through the lens of the motherhood spectrum, I say or suggest, because it's an idea, right? It's an idea (laughs) that any one individual, regardless of their gender, their desire and aptitude and experience of parenthood will exist on a spectrum that is dependent on multiple external and internal factors, everything from a person's basic personality to the family and the culture that they were raised in, to the religious beliefs that they were brought up on, to their financial status, to their relationship status, to their ambitions and career goals, to their creative aptitude, et cetera, et cetera. All of these factors are of course going to influence how a person feels about taking on the indelible, lifelong role of parenting and the responsibility of bringing a whole new human being into the world who you will be responsible for on some level for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. A role, by the way, which given the level of gender disparity that still exists in in the realm of child rearing is going to impact every single aspect of a woman's life And still women are told, but this is just what you do. Oh, and also they're told, nobody ever feels ready for it. (laughs) And also they're told, you'll regret it if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. And also we're told, you'll just, it'll just come naturally to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, when I stood back and kind of looked at it through this spectrum lens, all of that just seemed very, well, minimizing of women's true experiences, desires, capacities, et cetera. at at the very least, let's say. So I give people permission to really kind of investigate where am I orienting on this spectrum at this stage in my life? Mm -hmm. Because within that comes the permission to, well, I might, if I met someone I really wanted, I could really see that happening with, then I might change and might change my mind. And 
And that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, presenting the spectrum right up front, I wanted it to just be really permission giving for people mm-hmm. to really pursue whatever path is right for them by first and foremost gathering whatever information they might need to really assess what is the right thing, what is right for me in this life, at this time in this life. Mm. Can we talk about, just to make all the Liz's just, I just want to give them a moment of recognition. Can we just talk about all of the shit? I over-index in women, out of my closest seven women, four of them are women without children. So I hear all the things that people say to them or what culture suggests to them that are hilarious. For example, one of my best friends, Liz Gilbert, is always being told that she'll never have a fulfilled life. She'll never know love. If you saw this woman's life, like I cannot, she's, she'll send me texts that are like, oh, I'm still, you know, waiting for joy. And she's like on a boat in the career. Like it's still just- Still to find my purpose I'm over still, here. I just, Liz Gilbert, she can't find a fucking purpose without a toddler. It's like- Right. So- Can you talk to us about all of the bullshit that people say, you know, starting with you'll die alone as if any of us really just die collectively. Like it's just nobody, (laughs) we're all going to fucking die alone. Right. So can you Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about all of the things? I mean, remember we went went to Chelsea Handler's show the other night. She goes, for fuck's sake, I hope I die alone. (laughs) I don't want, I don't want a trove of people around me. Or like selfish, it's unnatural, nobody wanted you. What are all of these things that people assume about women without children? Yeah, you've touched on lots of them there. But yes, um, this idea that women without kids, especially women who have chosen not to have children. And I think we could probably get a bit into the difference between choice and circumstances as well. Where, Where does a choice end and where do sort of circumstances begin Statistically, the largest cohort of women who do not have children are defined as childless by circumstance, meaning had they met a different life partner, had they been in a different place in their career, in time, had various different circumstances aligned, they may well have had children. It wasn't as cut and dried as as the choice that people like Liz and I have made, which is Mm -hmm. just an affirmative no, kind of pretty much out the gate. Particularly women who for whom it is an affirmative no, this is not for me. We are seen as selfish, career-obsessed, narcissistic, uncaring, unfeeling, unloving, potentially defective in some way, damaged, whether it be emotionally or um, otherwise. I touched on this and Liz touched on it in her letter as well, this idea of just this underlying feeling of, if this is my truth, there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And all of those projections, I mean, really, truly led me to believe that perhaps there's something biologically wrong mm. with me, hormonally. I'm just not wired right, you know, mm. which is a kind of a heavy truth or a heavy belief to carry mm. around about oneself. Mm. And it's actually given me a huge amount of empathy for queer people who have been told mm-hmm. there is something wrong with you for feeling the way you do or for, for living in the body that you do or experiencing your body in the way that you do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, then some of the very unfeeling, sometimes well-meaning, but very thoughtless comments are things like, have you really thought about this? I mean, honestly, when I speak to most women without kids, it's this? one of the things that we have thought about <laughs> incessantly since we started getting our period. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yes, yeah. we've, yes, you can rest assured we've thought about this <laughs> deeply. <laughs> 
Um, have you really thought about this? The implication being you're ignorant or deluded or you don't know yourself or something. Mm. Who will look after you when you're old? That's mm. one of the biggest ones. And one that still holds a lot of fear for me, actually, that question, who will be there for me? Maybe not while I'm actually leaving this mortal coil, but who will be there in those elder years? Which I think is a question that we need to look at on a societal level, because actually kinless elders is one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States. And for as long as the birth rate continues to decline, there will continue to be more and more elders who do not have the conveniently placed biological kin to just kind of, you know, pick up the the sort of caregiving needs as needed. Mm -hmm. But one of the biggest ones as well is you will regret this. Maybe not now, but at some point in your life, you will regret not doing this thing. And there's an incredible sociologist called Orna Donut. She has a really, truly revolutionary book called Regretting Motherhood. Mm -hmm. which reports on the findings of a study that she conducted among women who actively wanted to talk about the fact that they did regret having had children. And she describes that comment, you will regret this as a politicized use of emotion. Nice. In that it is incredibly manipulative Mm -hmm. and coercive. And ultimately, whether it is meant or intentioned in a well-meaning way, ultimately it is designed to get whoever is the recipient of that message back with the procreative program. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this is not to even, you know, to speak to the, again, sort of the cohort who are childless, not by choice, who have experienced fertility issues and who are still walking this path. I think just um, there's a lot of sympathy, but not so much empathy. Yes. And that sympathy can be, I think, quite pitying yes, as well. And yes. so even interwoven with that is just this sense of, I have failed. Again, there is something wrong with me. My body failed me. I'm not going to be able to fulfill this role or live up to people's expectations. So again, a different shade of shame, but still very much there. Yeah. I bet there's some like, don't cry for me, Argentina energy in that. <laughs> I just feel like For me, I suddenly, when I'm listening to you and I've read your whole book and I've listened to all the things, I get what you're doing. I think I was thinking of you as a thought leader and like, that is the truth. But I'm also feeling deeply in this moment, grateful for you as a community leader, because when I think about the parallels between what you're doing with motherhood and what we have experienced with sexuality, being queer is also a bunch of people telling you that you're unnatural and that you're broken and that you're doing it wrong. And it's secretly believing, no, 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 you don't cry for me, Argentina. Like uh, my life's better than you're like, secretly <laughs> believing that. I'm like, I'm nailing it. Like you, you just don't get it. Cause you're only reading the menu that somebody gave you. But mm. when you, when you go off menu is where all the good stuff is. So what I'm saying is I don't know that I would have found the peace and power that I have if there wasn't a queer community mm-hmm. saying, oh, no, no, mm-hmm. we know what you're hearing. We've got you. We know you've thought it through. We know you're not unnatural. We know that you're living your best life. And that's what mothers who are child free by choice or not need is like right. a place to fall. And that is like, oh, no, no, we've got you. We know they don't and get it. It comes from a bigger Here. place because like you write about the same people who say, are you going to regret that? It's obnoxious and they shouldn't. Mm. And it is very possible that it is coming from a very real place of concern because Mm. we are all swimming in the same sea that Mm -hmm. you point out. We have tethered 
our search for meaning and fulfillment to our capacity to have children. And so that area has been monopolized, you know, as you say, purpose, family, love, legacy has been monopolized by this role of mother. And so when we are saying, are you sure? We are revealing ourselves as saying, mm-hmm. are you sure that you don't want to have purpose and family and love and legacy? Yeah. And so the work that you're doing to decouple those and say, no, all of these things are possible. Look wider. That is liberating to all of us to do that. So what is the liberatory work that you see in helping to like unshackle those things together for people who choose to not be mothers, people who involuntarily are not mothers and people who are mothers who really need to be unshackled from that as well. (laughs) Right. There's one thing I just want to say that pinged for me while you were speaking before, Glennon. I actually think that, and it's something that's kind of become come up for me more and more since the book came out and I've been having conversations about it. I actually think that this idea that womanhood is synonymous with motherhood is on some levels homophobic because it is saying that only engaging with our sexuality as women for the purpose of procreation is valid. All non-procreative sex is invalid, right? Which immediately wipes out all same sex kind of relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that's really kind of landed for me as well. So a little aside Mm -hmm. there, but I think quite interesting in terms of the liberation work. I mean, goodness, I actually think that It sort of seems obvious, but actually it's not because we haven't spoken about it in this way. The work of decoupling womanhood from motherhood specifically has really been at the heart of the women's liberation Mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. It is at the center of empowering or enabling or creating societies that make space for women to, at the very least, get an education and be financially independent. Like that's kind of what it comes down to. But guess what? Getting an education and being financially independent is going to take a huge amount of time, energy, and and resource that might otherwise have been put into having children. And it's not like people haven't been, you know, picking apart the myth of having it all and who having it all is actually available to and who not and what tends to fall through the cracks when we try and do it all. So I think liberating women from the idea that you have to well, yes, you can get an education and you can have a career and you can be financially independent, but you must also be a mother is a huge piece of it because so many women find themselves completely burnt out and also are unable to enjoy their mothering Mm -hmm. when they're also feeling the pressure to, well, I must also have a career and I must also be earning the same as my partner. If I have a partner, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that I think is a hugely liberatory piece of this conversation, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just sitting here listening to you all and everything you're saying. And I just keep asking myself, why, why are we like this? <laughs> you know? And I, I, I'm like, why are we like it is that? a really very smart way for the religious in- institutions and the nations of our world yes. to have as many people as they possibly can for taxpayer dollars and for money at, you know, in the churches and mosques and temples of the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not to mention consumers. Exactly. Oh, the more people, God. the more consumers. I mean, yes. yeah. But it's also such a patriarchal tool to convince women that sex is only for procreation yes. for a million reasons. Because inherent in that is the shaming of women for sex being about just 
fucking feeling good. Right. Like, yes, that's pleasure. shame. Fulfillment. Pleasure, right? Yes. I mean, Ruby, when you wrote, you were citing somebody and you said that um, the idea that human sex drive is not just about procreation is so easy to debunk because you said if you were born on a desert island, you would eat <laughs> yeah. and drink and masturbate, but you would not <laughs> obsess about wanting children, right? You it's wouldn't. not inherent. You'd want to climax, you'd figure that out pretty early, but like you wouldn't be, you know, registering at Babies R Us. That's something else. That's programmed into us. It's patriarchal. Yeah. I was speaking to um, an evolutionary biologist named Jillian Ragsdale, who was debunking the idea that there is a, a maternal urge this is one of the things that always made me question, there's got to be something wrong with me. This concept of baby fever, mm-hmm. of just at a certain age, something kicks in and people would describe it as a feeling, a yearning, a hunger, something that, I don't know, sounded physical the way they were describing yeah. it. And it was just this desire to, I've got to have a child. When I walk past strollers, my ovaries start like pulsing. And I'm like, I've never felt that. I've never felt that, what's going on. And Jillian Ragsdale was sort of essentially saying that this is, yeah, socially programmed mm-hmm. conditioning um, that is very much tied to what you were just touching on, Amanda, which is around like, in order for me to be accepted, to belong, to be a valid, upstanding member of society, then I must become a mother. So Jillian was kind of saying that actually from a biological perspective, all human beings need is a sex drive. Mm-hmm. They just need to be having enough sex, enough procreative sex and eventually more babies will come along. And at that point, when there are infants in the mix, then there is a biological mm-hmm. instinct to care for and protect those small defenseless human beings. But the desire to actually engage with sex in order to have a child to procreate, it's not essential for our survival and evolution as a mm-hmm. species, mm-hmm. is what she was saying, which to me felt incredibly revolutionary. I mean, I'd never heard someone express that before, but it makes so much sense. It sure does. And yes, Abby, you were talking about where does patriarchy originate? Well, in the, you know, these, the religious organized religions, which deify one male God figure (laughs) who doles out the rules about how we live and what is morally right and wrong. And, you know, these religions took over from earth-based religions that were much more feminine, much more cyclical, much more humane in many ways. And so, yes, I mean, written into so many religious doctrines is be fruitful and multiply, Yes, which viewed from the perspective of, well, so many things that we're seeing unfolding in the world, it's tribalism. Mm -hmm. It's saying we need more of us Mm -hmm. so that we can dominate them. That's exactly right. That's exactly (laughs) right. We need more of us so we can dominate them. Go forth and multiply. It just means make more soldiers. Be fruitful and multiply. Make more 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 soldiers for us. Make more people like us. Yes, let's all be quiverful so we can beat the other people. Yeah. And it's not to say that these decisions, because it is possible to both very much want children or very much not want children and be able to look at the structures and the society we live in in an intellectually honest way. So if you're sitting there and you love your kid and you don't think it's because God or the president told you to have it, great. That's awesome. We believe you. But it, it does seem to follow like if A, then B, if B, then C, that we have followed into this trap if women's biological imperative is to have children. 
we let that immediately go. Okay, woman to biological imperative to have children. Then we immediately go from B to C, which is having the children means C, taking on this whole host of roles. So whereas like Mm. having a baby is not a political decision, much like wanting to fall in love and have a long-term monogamous relationship is not a political decision. And yet when you enter the institution of motherhood or the institution of marriage, you are undoubtedly Mm. entering into a very real social political structure that is defined by these written unwritten rules, which we saw Mm -hmm. just this time, like 40 years of mothers in the workplace advances erased in nine months by the pandemic. Why? Because if Mm. A, then B, then C. If you are a mother, you're having the baby. If you are having the baby, your ass is home, homeschooling them for this year because we have jumped that math so easily that that is the structure that we're in. And that's how all of this happens. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations and multiple systems, the more margin you have and the more of your hard-earned money you get to keep. But with higher expenses than ever on things like materials and distribution, everything just costs more. That's why smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. You'll reduce IT costs, you'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you'll improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, and expenses don't slow down, so why should you? By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hard things. netsuite.com slash hard things. That's netsuite.com slash hard things. There's a lot of subscription-based stuff nowadays, which is great. You might get one as a gift. You might really want to try something during a trial period. You might even make the occasional impulse buy. But what happens when you forget you signed up for this platform or need to cancel after the trial period on the platform. For me, I can never even find where I signed up to begin with. It gets overwhelming, but Rocket Money is here to help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash hard things. That's rocketmoney.com slash hard things. Rocketmoney.com slash hard things. I think it's like important to say like it, it, what we can do is detribalize that situation. Like I will tell you, I am on one side of the spectrum, the motherhood spectrum. I am for sure in me on the mommy side. It is clear. It was I, uh, what I wanted. It's the, even the days that I'm ripping out my hair. I also 
What I find so interesting is when somebody is on another side of the spectrum, being angry at that person or or having to defend, like I can be on one side of the mom spectrum and respect the hell and love the person at the other side of the spectrum. I don't feel like I need to defend my- Straight people don't threaten you? No, I don't don't feel feel threatened by straight people. I mean, I feel like maybe they want some more information, but like, (laughs) but do you know what I mean, Ruby? It is amazing to me, you know, if a friend talks about her reasons not to be, have a child, people get upset who have children. Some. Yeah. Some people, a lot of them. Yeah. So like, what do you- Why that too? Why does it feel so threatening? Is it because we've built our entire worldview on this one thing and it feels like people are taking a Jenga piece out if they, if they question it? I also just want to iterate having a strong desire to have children, craving to be a parent, wanting to have children, even if that is a social construct, doesn't mean that it's not very, very real for you, the person who's experiencing that. So it's not like anybody's been duped into like thinking they want children. (laughs) No, to have that desire depending where you are on the the motherhood spectrum is very real for the people who feel that. So Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say that like everyone's been hoodwinked into having kids, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because obviously huge swaths of the population find deep purpose and fulfillment in parenthood and could not imagine life without that dimension. But the piece about, you know, people who are very critical, I mean, think first and foremost, we just, and this is one of our human traits in a way, we do have a deep fear of the other or anything that has been presented as the other. And so fear can come out as attacks, obviously, um, and defensiveness of choices that are, you know, in alignment with what the in-group is telling us we should do Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, we don't want to be seen as one of the others. So the more strongly we align with the in-group, then the safer we are. Mm -hmm. And I also do think that sometimes, and this is me, I do think that sometimes when those attacks are very vicious or shaming, they could potentially reflect resentment, a feeling of being disenfranchised in the role of mother, a feeling of maybe even regretting having had children, feelings of envy about the freedom that the childless person is. But those feelings being so disallowed that even the person who's experiencing those feelings is probably not fully conscious of them. And so it comes out as, well, look at you, you selfish bitch. Look at you, you know, you irresponsible, immature human being. You know, it's like they're protecting their own sense of motherhood. They're like, how dare you like offend me? Well, you can, and and God forbid that I have any desire to live my life more like that because that would make me a terrible mother and a terrible human. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're, if you're suffering and you feel like all you've got is that you did the right thing, then all you can do when someone shows up, not suffering all you can do to justify your own suffering is say, yeah, but I'm going to win at the end. Because yeah. you look like you're winning right exactly. now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, yeah, in the end, but I won't time be alone. will come. Time, time will tell. I will get my you eternal meet, reward. <laughs> you will meet your maker one day. I, I want to say just want some, something really quick because I do think that there are a lot of queer women who listen to this podcast, a lot of older queer women who back in the day when they were in quotes, childbearing years, Um, Mm. There wasn't as much access to medical, you know, gestational surrogacy, IVF for queer women, older women now who um, may have wanted to have children. And I fall in a category of I don't have biological children of my own and we have three children together. 
And and I just want to shout out to all the queer folks who have organized their family structures in different ways. And some of those women who may have wanted children and and chose yeah. not to because mm-hmm. the world wasn't set up for them in a way that Amen. they could feel confident going into getting IVF or whatnot. There's just so many people on this motherhood spectrum yeah. that I yeah. just I want to specifically shout out to those women. I see you and I know in some ways how that might have felt. And yeah. we're here. Yeah. Thank you. Because in the introduction, I, I specifically shout out also this book is also for anybody whose sexuality or gender expression has written them out of the heteronormative yes. idea about what it means yes. to start a family. Beautiful. Yeah. It feels like when I go to out to eat with Abby sometimes and I get the menu and I look at the menu and I'm like, here are my options. So I order something from the menu. And then Abby does some shit where she's like, actually, can I, can you do that? But add that. And then can you take away that? And it's like, not there. It wasn't there. But then she gets her shit and it's so much better. And I, and it annoys me because I thought we were just supposed to stay on the menu. I feel like that's how women feel, which I understand. Like that's how women feel when they, when somebody else goes off the menu and they have this delicious mm. life slash meal in front of them. And now it's too late for me because I already ordered. So all I, all I can think of to do is say, you didn't follow the rules. <laughs> what she says is, can I have yours? Can I? <laughs> right. <laughs> but Ruby, that's what I love you about your work. It's like. No, no, no. It's, it's this idea that the, the world does give us a menu, whether it's about sexuality, gender, motherhood, whatever. But there's specific reasons why the choices are there. And they're not because mm. they serve the orderer. They're because mm. they serve the order of things. It's Ooh, most convenient for the kitchen. Right. The kitchen can maximize profits a lot of the time yes. by offering these set dishes. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. But I think that these off-menu options have only been available to women. And I'm speaking very, very broadly here because there are so many women for whom this is not still available. Yes. And there are so many people for whom this was not available. Speaking very generally, these off-menu options have only been available to women in a kind of mainstream sense, in the West at least, only like 50 years, realistically, (sighs) since Mm -hmm. the advent of like, you know, reliable, effective birth control, legal abortion, changing attitudes about women's roles in society is still incredibly new. If we're Mm. thinking about the original menu having been written, you know, really at the sort of beginning of our modern civilization. So I think this is why another reason there's still so much tension around this. It's really only Gen X women, like our generation of women, were the very first generation to have been raised from birth, from babyhood, from girlhood with the message, you can do, be, have, whatever you want in your life. And here I am, I've lived that. I have lived that. Thank you, thank you, foremothers, for enabling me to Mm. have these choices. And yet when I make those choices, I am demonized still, Mm. you know? And that just felt like, no, 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 we need to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We need to recognize that we have fought very hard for women to have these choices Mm -hmm. and make it okay for us to make those choices. Mm Let's talk about all the reasons. Because first of all, there shouldn't be a need to suggest reasons at all. 
But it's cool and fun to like think about all the different reasons that people might not want to have kids, which is helpful when you think yeah. about the reasons we're given is you hate children, you're witches, you, right. you are broken. So other than those reasons, uh, other, right, right. other than those. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, you did write that the, this is all tied with witches, like not witches, actual there, Wiccan witches. I mean, I'm talking about witch hunt, yes. you know, like the witch being yes. a woman in total control of herself. Like, right. Right. So yes. can talk to us about reasons. One being Ruby, you say in your book, just, it just isn't, it's like me being queer or like you being a mother feels as fundamentally part of yourself as your skin does. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter called Sexual Evolution where I really get into the whole piece about female sexuality and how tied female sexuality especially has been to procreation. And it was the hardest chapter to write. And I was editing it right up until like, I literally had to press go like, yes, okay, you can take it now. Put the book out. Fine. Done. But also not quite done. <laughs> and there's a term I found myself using in interviews after the book came out, which is a reproductive, which is why I was so fascinated by your interview on asexuality. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it just sort of came out. I was like, I would say I'm just a reproductive, like asexual. I just have no, there's just no desire to reproduce. Like there's no desire for me to engage with my sexuality in a reproductive capacity. Mm-hmm. And that, I like that language because it just, to me, and I'm not saying that anybody else has to relate to that, by the way. Mm-hmm. For me, it works because it just takes away the emotional charge of like childless or child-free. It's more like, no, this is just how I'm made. Mm-hmm. This is how I'm made. So there's that, which is fundamentally, it's just a part of who I am. And I yeah. think that prob- that honestly probably does apply to a fairly small percentage of society. Although I don't know, again, time will tell, I think, as the decades roll by and right. we see what attitudes are like among younger generations who continue to have fewer and fewer children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, yes, wanting to prioritize my career and to pursue a creative career. I can take a risk on not having a day job. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't start a 401k until last year and I'm 47. And I've been able to take that risk mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I haven't had any other dependents. I've only really had to worry about me, you know? Yeah. Selfish bitch. Amazing. <laughs> so wanting to pursue a creative career. Um, also another thing that's that's personal to me that a lot of other people have reflected back. Yeah, that's me too. I'm very introverted as in like, I need a lot of time on my own. I'm a very sensitive person and I absorb a lot from my environment and my surroundings. And for me, having a lot of total solitude, alone time, quiet time is incredibly important to my mental and emotional well-being. I mean, yeah, having kids reduces one's capacity for solitude and alone so time. And I just think so I've always here. known that about myself. Mm-hmm. These are very, they're very personal reasons to me, but I'm sort of saying, giving everyone an invitation to sort of, well, what would your reasons be? Yeah. You know, then there are some potentially more painful reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents separated when I was one, my dad never lived with us. And I think I had an intuition that having a child puts incredible strain on a relationship. Mm -hmm. When I met my husband, who I've been with for 25 years, I was 22. He was such a stabilizing force in my life at that time. And I knew I wanted to be with him forever. And I think I've just always not trusted that bringing a child into our relationship wouldn't fundamentally alter the dynamic between us and put our relationship at risk. Mm-hmm. So I've chosen to prioritize my relationship and my connection with him. That's another mm-hmm. reason that's personal to me. Something I had never, honestly, never seen discussed was how a person's experience of being mothered impacts their feelings about becoming a mother. Mm. This was so And beautiful, so I do Ruby. talk 
at mm. length in the book about my relationship with my mom mm-hmm. and the dynamic between us. But I also did um, a research sort of interview questionnaire. And I had about 200 people reply to that. And so many, like a large percentage of women who replied to that expressed that a challenging relationship in, in some way with their mother had made them question, do I want to recreate that relationship with another human being in my life? So these are more painful reasons, which again, are just never completely brushed under the carpet, never even considered actually. And then of course, there are, there are bigger sort of like societal issues. Well, especially in the United States, no free healthcare, no free childcare, no paid paternity leave. Like these sorts of issues, of course, are going to impact people's very practical decision-making around do I have the capacity to take on this role, you know? I loved that. It was so brave and and beautiful the way you talk about that some people just decide to stop the family emotional inheritance. I think you described it as sometimes the family has suffered too much to carry on another generation Mm -hmm. and that there is a way of like to engage in the work of healing trauma without getting another generation involved is Mm -hmm. so valorous. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was so brave and beautiful to talk about. So a decision can be to stop the family emotional inheritance, but then also to consider stopping the collective emotional inheritance. We don't take care of mothers and families, right? We that do the not. Pa- we patriarchal parenting and families are horseshit. So, and yeah. women and children have suffered. So it, in one way, there is a decision-making that is about stopping suffering. Hmm. Right. And I think I'd always been very aware of this, you know, not having children means something is ending with me. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sounds sort of sad and lonely and very final. But I was like, what about if we flip that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we consider what might be ending with me, what I might have the opportunity by not bringing another generation of my family lineage into the world. What might I have an opportunity to focus instead of focusing my nurturing energies on that human being? What if I refocus those energies on myself mm. and decided that I was going to dedicate my life to healing whatever emotional traumas I might have inherited, healing whatever dysfunctional patterning might have been handed down to me and my family, and in some way using that healing to, you know, benefit the lives of others, which sounds a little bit kind of high-minded and, no, it and worthy, but why the hell not? Why no, the hell doesn't. not? <laughs> you know? No, it doesn't. And then I think, yes, when we see, so the other piece, when I first started thinking about this subject, you know, my background is in journalism. And so I immediately have this tendency to kind of zoom out and just look at the lay of the land. And I notice very quickly that the birth rate, meaning the number of children that individual women are having is decreasing rapidly in every single country around the world. Hmm. Even countries where the population is still growing, women are having far fewer children individually. And I was like, something very interesting is happening here Mm -hmm. in terms of the evolution of womankind. What are we seeing here? And I sort of posit just as a more sort of like an idea, like an intellectual idea. What if we are on some level enacting a, "Mm -mm, no, no more, unless working conditions for mothers are improved, we are saying no to this, which, yeah. (laughs) There is a fantastic book by a feminist organizer called Jenny Brown, specifically called Birth Strike, where she kind of gets into that idea of like, this is what we're witnessing is a birth strike. Mm. Um, And that, again, we haven't really touched on the climate piece, but there is a cohort 
particularly among sort of Gen Zs Mm -hmm. and younger millennials who I describe as childless by climate change, people who are just incredibly worried, torn up about what it means to bring a child onto a planet that is dying, that we're being told is dying. Mm -hmm. And that politicians and corporations seem to have very, very little interest in really addressing in a meaningful way. With the 2024 games in Paris on the horizon, I've gotten nostalgic about my international career. And when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive, research-based, dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, We Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you are feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative, and customer support. At Robert Half, We know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Single-handedly impacting our environment for the better, that's a daunting task. But it's possible, and there are incredible people who are living proof that setting your mind to something and really being passionate about it will bring about change. The Goldman Environmental Prize is the world's foremost award honoring grassroots environmental activists. Each year, the prize honors six ordinary people who are making an extraordinary impact for the planet. If you look at this year's winners, you'll learn about Marcel Gomez, who exposed the links between a company's meatpacking practices and illegal deforestation, which led to a major boycott of that company's products. Amazing. You'll learn about Andrea Vidalre, whose relentless leadership resulted in California adopting its most ambitious emissions reduction regulations in history. And there are more amazing stories to discover. I can't imagine stories more important than these. Find the stories of this year's prize winners at goldmanprize.org. It makes you really wonder that if the question is even wrong, Okay, so why don't you want kids? You suggest the question should be, what are the potential life paths I could pursue? Mm. 
So like the question for men, and, and, and I think we should go beyond even what they're for men. Like I'm not trying to create a binary there, but for boys and men, it is not, do you want kids or not? That's not the main mm. defining question posed to you in your life. It's more like, what are the potential life paths I could pursue? And even when you say that you've always had an affirmative no, which I love that concept of an affirmative no. It's not just like, I'm like, oh, uh, depressedly opting out. It's like, yay to my no. Yay. Yay, no. Yay, it's no. A hell yes to the hell no. no. Exactly. But, hell no. But I also yes, no. even feel like that on some level is unfair. It's like, let's get to the point where some people are opting in and they can explain to us why. But with the climate the actual climate and then the climate for women and families in this country, maybe we should all be mm. explaining ourselves for why we're opting in, not why we're opting out. I interviewed a guy called Carter Dillard. He has an organization called the Fair Start Foundation. And he's all about getting people to ask that question. What needs to be in place in order for me to ensure the fair start in life? You know, as mm -hmm. things currently stand, deep, there's deep, such deep inequity, obviously, globally, that mean still probably the vast majority of children being born are not being given a fair start. Yes. He's a human rights lawyer, you know, mm. but one of his core tenets is encouraging people to have smaller families and to really consider investing more in the children that exist before we pressure or think about bringing more people, as many people as possible into the mix. And this, I mean, this work goes directly against, you know, demographers and captains of industry on the other side who are talking very um, sort of scaremongering rhetoric about the dangers of population collapse and the ah, dangers of maybe. aging societies, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. On a personal level, one of my favorite conversations as research for this book was with one of my best friends who underwent, I think, three or four pretty traumatic rounds of IVF mm. to have her twins. Mm -hmm. And because we don't ask that question, I had never thought to ask it. But we are close enough that I could say to her, why did you do, why? <laughs> Please explain to me why that was like, why you put yourself through that, you know? Mm -hmm. Because watching as her friend, I was obviously incredibly supportive of her and incredibly thrilled for her when she was able to have her babies. But still, I couldn't understand why, how she could go through that. And hearing her talk about her reasons for so desperately wanting to have a family helped me get even more clarity about my reasons for not wanting a family. Mm. And just kind of, I don't know, it, it, it created space for both of us to have our reasons, to have pursued the past that we have and to respect each other's choices. And there is so much misunderstanding, actually on both sides, Agreed. I think, if we're talking about sides, if we're talking about a binary, across the spectrum, let's say. And I think these are, these are actually questions that are really about at the heart of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a human. Human. You know? Yep. At one of the launch events for the book, a woman raised her hand at the very end and she said, you know, I'm so happy to be here. She's like, I realize this is something I think about every day of my life. Mm. And I never talk about it. Mm. And she's like, because I didn't realize I needed to or I could. Mm -hmm. And yet these, these conversations, this question, should I have a child or not, is really at the heart of a human's life. Yeah. and will determine the, the trajectory of that life going forward. Mm. So not to be entered into lightly. And in fact, at this juncture in our human story, I think more important than ever to be really conscious about the humans we're bringing through and why and what resources they're going to have and how we're going to really ensure that they have the best start and the best life possible. Hmm. Beautiful. 
that conversation with your dear friend who had her twins by IVF was so beautiful to me because what I recall about that is one of the things she said is that I have so much overflowing love that I have always known that I wanted to pour that into a child. And your reflection after that was so beautiful because you talked about, oh, that overflowing love that she has, that she has decided and always knew was to be directed for a child. I have that for my ideas, this Mm -hmm. overflowing love that I have for that. And I just wonder (laughs) what kind of world we would live in. Oh, so good. If the question to every child that we see is not, how many kids do you want to have? Or what are you going to be when you grow up? Or what's your job going to be? But was to what are you going to pour your love into in this mm-hmm. life? Yeah. And if it was wide, like lots of people would have babies and lots of people would pour their love into books and service and making art. Mm-hmm. And, but like, that would assume that all choices are valid and noble and natural yes. to pour your love into. So good. And also that we need as humans multiple expressions of our yes. creativity and our yes. love and our generativity. And it was, um, it's, yeah, like have it, reflecting on that conversation with her, I've always felt like, oh God, I'm one of those lucky weirdos who just feels completely fulfilled by my career and by my work. And I do consider myself incredibly fortunate to have been able to pursue a career and to actually make a living from it, doing something that I feel so passionate about. And as I already touched on, the reason I've been able to pursue this is partly because I don't have a a child. And I do think that more women leaders in business, in politics, in the arts will begin to shift the power balance in the world. It just will. The more women who are able to pour not just their love, but their time, their energy, their other resources, their intelligence into pursuits that might impact public life, the better, actually. (laughs) And that helps you understand why the the backlash against that happening is so strong. Mm. Because Um. the shaming and the cultural ideas of you feeling less than if you're not a mother are what are keeping more women who would choose not to do that and enter the public sphere from doing it, which makes it a worthwhile effort for the patriarchy to continue poisoning us with those ideas. One of the things I'm so interested about in you as a person, besides this particular issue is a connection to me from like your work with Sober Curious to this work. It's interesting to me how drinking is like the one thing you have to explain that you're not doing. It's like, I don't Mm -hmm. have to be at a party, explain why I'm not on cocaine. I don't have to explain like, why aren't you using heroin? Like I, but I, I constantly have to explain why I'm not drinking in the same way, which, which proves what a cultural imperative it is. In the mm-hmm. same way why my my friends who don't have kids have to constantly explain why they don't have kids, which illuminates why it's how it's such a cultural imperative. Ruby, yes. What else are there? What what are you gonna <laughs> what are you is there anything else that you're thinking of 
Because what's interesting about your work is there's this thread in it of it that is not even about the subject necessarily. It's about something that you've figured out. Oh, that's so weird how we all do that thing. And it's, it's more interesting that we're expected to. Are there any other things that you're looking at down the road that you're like, huh, that's interesting that that's expected of us. And it's more interesting to think about why. I love this question. Well, first of all, thank you for picking up on that. Because when I pitched this book, nobody wanted to buy it because all the publishers we spoke to said, but Ruby's audience is sober curious. They won't be interested in a book on this subject from her. But for me, they're talking about a very similar life path. This is about choosing or having chosen for you a life path that will mean you're existing in the outgroup, that you're going against the cultural imperative. And that is a lonely path. It is an alienating path. And we need community on that path. And so that for me is the similarity between these two books. Without giving too much away, I suppose. I knew it. I I knew it. (laughs) The subject I am interested in as a 47-year-old woman is when does a person become an old person and become irrelevant? I just, I don't know. There's something around ageism. Mm-hmm. This is it. It's ageism. Ageism is the only ism that will impact every single human mm-hmm. being. And yet it flies consistently under the radar and is completely accepted and normalized in so many invisible and visible ways. And so I am very interested in getting into that hole. Could you I do mean, it very quickly? Worms. Because we're right there. <laughs> yeah. And I really just right. need you to like yeah. wrap yeah. that up yeah. in the next three yeah. to four years. Wrap it up. I just you, want Both to be on it. on it. I just want to be involved in whatever group that Ruby is creating. <laughs> a bunch of sober, old, child-free women. Like, yes, yes please. Sign I mean, me up for that commune, Ruby. Great. Okay. Great. I do think to that piece about like, who will look after you when you're old? I also, I really do believe that we're going to come up with so many interesting creative solutions for supporting each other, living together, living alongside each other, pooling our resources. My faith in humanity is, is, (laughs) takes a beating most days, but I do have faith in our ingenuity. And um, yeah, I believe that we'll figure it out. All right. Here's page 77 of Ruby's book, Women Without Kids. It says, and if our unconventional path draws criticism, This in turn means committing to radical self-love and establishing one's own code of ethics while seeking fulfillment and a sense of purpose outside of the tidy parameters of what is deemed socially acceptable. This process will be familiar to anybody who has ever experienced being othered or even persecuted, whether due to race, religion, sexuality, gender expression, disability, or class, or for being single, for getting a divorce, for having an abortion, or for being a less than perfectly selfless mom. All experiences that require a person, first and foremost, to uncover and advocate for who we are and what we need, no matter what our family, our culture, or society at large has to say about it. Ruby. Ruby! Keep going, Ruby! (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being so here. great. Mm. We love you, Pod Squad. Go forth and do whatever the fuck you want. Please <laughs> be you. Give yourself what you need, unapologetically, but be kind. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So do hard good. things. Do hard things softly. We love you. <laughs> yes. Bye. Mm-hmm. 
If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to us if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do these three things. First, can you please follow or subscribe to We Can Do Hard Things? Following the pod helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. To do this, just go to the We Can Do Hard Things show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then just tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click on follow. This is the most important thing for the pod. While you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a five-star rating and review and share an episode you loved with a friend, we would be so grateful. We appreciate you very much. We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. I continue to Two